It really is an honor to be here. I always love an excuse to come up to, uh, to Louisville, and I discovered Norwich Donuts this time. So uh, now I need an excuse to come back. So uh, anytime, Bob. Uh, I am delighted as well to speak about being faithful to prepare. Uh, I think the fact that I work with college students, I'm going into my 19th year as a pastor to college students, um, it, it very much has set me in the mindset of why do we do what we do? And what can I help instill in my students that will help them wherever they go? I don't know what churches they'll go to. I don't know what kind of preaching they'll sit under. But I know that they will face suffering. I know they will face death. And I hope that one day they will see heaven. And so what can I do now that will help prepare them for that? One of the core convictions of my life and my heart as I read the Scriptures is that we are preparing our people for something. Because worship is formative, whether we like it or not. Worship is formative, whether we like it or not. Whenever we sing a song, whenever we pray, whenever we read the Scriptures, we are modeling for people what the normal Christian life feels like. And I'm so, I'm so burdened that we represent that well, honestly. Not just for those outside the church, but for those inside the church. Because most of my ministry has been dealing with, with kids who've grown up in the church and get to college and begin to question lots of things. One of the things I love about Sovereign Grace, and it's been a real joy to be here, it's been an encouraging thing for me. Uh, my students come back in about a couple weeks, so uh, this is kind of the time of the year where I'm starting to try to gear up, you know, for, for all those crazy freshmen coming. And it is kind of nice, actually, to work with college students. Even if you're tired, there's sort of this energy that you sort of tap into by osmosis. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm glad for the summer <laughs> where they leave and we can sort of prepare and recharge. But this has been great for recharging. And one of the things I love about Sovereign Grace and, and the theme of this conference and the way it's all been put together and flows so well together is that theology is not just for pastors and music is not just for worship leaders. And, and, and this is a conference rather unique, I think, in trying to bring those two things together and bringing those two groups of people together. I guess the thing I want us to, to reflect on today is that worship is not just corporate emoting, but spiritual formation, right? There's nothing wrong with emoting, but what we do when we gather together as the people of God is so much bigger than that. You understand this? Now, what's interesting, you know, I, I love coming here because you know the names of the Reformed heroes, Right? In the context where I minister, that's not, that's not the world. I can't quote Luther without qualifying and apologizing for some things that he said, right? But this is great. I even heard, you know, Tim Keller a couple of years ago at the Gospel Coalition used a George Whitfield illustration and didn't even have to explain who he was. I was like, he could never do that in New York. And I could never do, talk about some of the people I can talk about with you all. It's great. It's kind of like being home. And I really love that. But do you know how many of our reformed heroes so many people that we revere for their preaching, if you've read their biographies and you've read the church history, you think of these men and you think of them and their great preaching, but so many of them, so many of them spent considerable time and effort attending to the kinds of songs their people were singing. 
could start with Luther. Martin Luther, it's said uh, of him by a Catholic cardinal who lived a, a century later, that Luther damned more souls with his songs than with his sermons. Now, you know, we might take a different view, <laughs> but the point is the same. The people that looked at the fruit of Martin Luther's ministry and the Reformation that came to Europe through that man, flawed as he was, it was the songs that were hugely important. And from the perspective, at least, of somebody who wasn't a friend of Luther's theology, it was the songs that were even more vital. Now, I don't mean to denigrate preaching. I am a preacher who dabbles in church music because as a pastor, I found that the songs my students are singing are so vital to the gospel getting into their heart. But so Luther did this, and I love there's one of the places he actually had to take up the cause himself. He puts out the first Lutheran hymn roll. It has about a dozen hymns in it is all, most of which he's written or adapted from, from Psalms. And, and yet in the uh, preface to it, he calls on German Christians and poets and musicians to take up the call, he says, to noise this gospel abroad. Don't you love that? Isn't that what we're still trying to do? Noise this gospel abroad. And there begins to be this massive outpouring of hymns and songs. John Calvin, when he gets to Geneva, the people are not singing in worship. Right? As a matter of fact, he keeps trying to tell the folks there in Geneva, we need to sing. He says at one point, our prayers are so cold and lifeless, we really should try singing. It really will help. He can't convince anybody. Eventually he gets exiled, kicked out of Geneva, lest you think that he ran that city with an iron fist. It's not really true. He gets kicked out of Geneva. He ends up going into exile, and he finally hears Bootser's congregation singing to God in their own language. And what was theory, he now experiences for the first time. He becomes even more convinced. He actually publishes the first Genevan Psalter when he's not even in Geneva. And part of the condition for him coming back, when finally the city fathers say, we want you to come back, says, well, we've got to sing. And he works on singing for the rest of his life. You may think of Calvin, you think of his writings, you think of, you know, maybe some doctrines that seem particular to him, though they're not. But singing was hugely important to him. Hugely important to him. You might know about them, but how many of you know that George Whitfield produced a hymnal? Not many. George Whitfield produced, I remember reading biographies of George Whitfield, you would have never known that he did anything with hymns. I would have thought he just preached. He just ran around and preached everywhere. But he edited a hymn book. How about J.C. Ryle? One of the ways I was drawn into the Reformed faith in college when I found in an old used bookstore J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, and at the same time I found a book by this man, Robert Murray McShane, and his biography, really his prayer journal in a lot of ways, just drew me into, I want to know more about the theology that drives that kind of longing for holiness. And in J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, I got an introduction not only to the Puritans, but to the doctrine of sanctification. And I thought, here's what I wanted to know. I didn't understand predestination. I wasn't sure what I thought about it. But if 
those guys that have this longing for holiness and this nuanced understanding of the depth of sin and the way of grace in the heart, I want to know, and I'll give them a pass on this predestination thing, because of all the theologies I've been exposed to, none of them produces this kind of longing for holiness and this honest admission of the depravity of the human heart. But J.C. Ryle, I came to find years later, made a hymnal. I love the title of his hymnal. It's, it's called Hymns for the Church on Earth. Doesn't cover every topic. It covers the suffering that we endure now, and it whets our appetite for heaven. And I'll tell you, if you're interested, you can download it as a free PDF if you go to Google Book Search and you look up J.C. Ryle, Hymns for the Church on Earth. Not only J.C. Ryle, Spurgeon. Yesterday, I, I snuck away from the conference to go to Nord's Donuts, and I also popped over to Sem- Southern Seminary, and they let me hold a copy of the first edition of Spurgeon's Our Own Hymn Book. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's where y'all found the text for Before the Throne, right? A beloved hymn among many of us here. Spurgeon made a hymn book. Again, we think of him as a preacher, right? The prince of preachers, even. But he cared about the songs people sang. So my first point, really, my introduction point, is pastors, worship leaders, if you would be faithful to prepare your people for suffering, death, and heaven, please don't farm out the music and the worship to the music director. Because what people sing is a pastoral issue. Work together. Work together. Learn how to talk about it. Learn how to dream and think about the formative power of worship. Honestly, this is how I began with Indelible Grace. I'd worked in the music business, but when I went off to seminary, I thought in a lot of ways I was done with music. I'd felt myself being drawn out of music to to care for for students. I felt like I like doing music. I like playing guitar. But when I sit across the table at a coffee shop and talk to a student about the gospel and I see the lights go on, that's what I want to devote my life to. And yet I kept getting pulled back into music. You know why? I, I would have this regular experience. Now again, I work at a, at a university where most of the students are from church backgrounds. For a lot of you, they're your kids. And I would talk to them and I would have this regular conversation with them where they would talk to me about their doubts and their struggles and they would, they would wonder if they were really even Christians. And I would often say to them, well, have you read the Psalms? No, they generally hadn't read the Psalms. But it went deeper than that. It went deeper than that. As I began to tease out, where was this coming from? It's one thing to have doubts and struggles. It's another thing to conclude from that that you therefore can't be a Christian. You see, what's happened is somewhere they've picked up an idea that the normal Christian life, what Christians feel like, is they're confident on the mountaintop all the time. As I began to tease out where is this coming from, I realized, oh my gosh, they get this from the songs that they're singing. Here I am trying to teach them about the gospel. I'm trying to teach them about the ups and downs of the Christian life. Even things like the God withdrawing his presence, which is a theme in scripture, but not a theme in many of the songs we sing. And I, I remember thinking, my gosh, the songs are undermining what I'm trying to do. I'm going to I'm gonna have to find some new songs for us to sing. And I didn't exactly know where to start. I had some old books 
I never thought I'd get to go to seminary, so I'd started buying old books and reading them way back in college. And by this point, I had a couple hymnals, and I started looking through them, and I started finding texts that I thought, my students need to sing these things. And so we just started trying to, to sing these songs. The songs they were singing were more formative than almost anything in their Christian life. And of course, the Bible tells us to expect this very thing. Look at this passage. It's in Colossians 3. You don't have to turn there. It's only one verse. Maybe you know it. Hopefully you do. Colossians 3.16. Paul says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul says, if you want the word of Christ, or it could even be translated, the word about Christ, the gospel, and it has all its implications, sing, and sing to each other. All kinds of songs. Of course, the songs we sing are forming our people. This morning I want to explore how this works itself out in these three areas. How can songs form us for our inevitable encounter with suffering, death, and hopefully heaven? And I want to anchor each point in a hymn. Now, you know, I, I could if, if I had three talks. I could find a scripture passage. When Bob gave me so much ground to cover, I hope it'll be okay. Colossians 3.16 is our text. We're going to roll it out into three sections, but I want us to learn from them, of those saints, those fathers and mothers in the faith who went before us, and how they've sung these things to one another, and what we can learn from that. So first, we're going to look at this idea of suffering. How can we prepare our people for suffering. And the text I want to look at is a hymn by Anne Steele. Dear refuge of my weary soul. I'm going to read this together. But let me just tell you, when I first stumbled upon this text, I had this old Baptist hymnal from the early 1800s. If you were in my seminar, I held it up and showed people. I just had this old hymnal. I just started reading through it. And I remember when I ran across that first line, I was just stopped dead in my tracks. Like, you can say that? In church, you can sing that? Look at this. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. Look, the first thing I want to say about this is it's okay to sing a song like this. It's okay to say these sorts of things to God. If there's an emotion expressed in the Psalter, it's okay for us to say it. John Calvin calls the Psalter a little anatomy of the soul. I love that. He says there's not an emotion common to mankind that isn't somewhere found in the Psalms. And sometimes he says we don't even know what we're feeling until we sing it. Have you ever been in that place 
where you're just such a jumble of emotions, you don't even know how to, how to separate them out, how to even figure out what's going on. And of course, the heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond understanding. But singing helps us. And so you see this, this hymn and you see, look at this. The first lesson is own the disorientation that suffering brings. Sit in it. Wrestle with it before the face of God. I can just tell you, Ann Steele's hymns were some of the most popular hymns up until about 100 years ago. I don't know exactly why, but she's almost completely disappeared from the hymnals. Theological fads and fashions come and go. And I think in a lot of ways, in the past 100 years, we've toned down the dark side of the Christian life in an attempt to be more relevant, in an attempt to bring people along to the faith. But listen, bait and switch (laughs) will get you nowhere, right? Because in so many ways, the kids I'm dealing with got that bait and switch thing through their youth group, right? They sing songs and, you know, as we say, kind of jokes and cokes sort of approach to youth ministry. And then they get freshman year and they learn about postmodernism and deconstructionism which has some radical implications for a faith based on a word that's written, right? And they don't know what to do with it. And they certainly don't know what to do with the angst and the disorientation of life. But I love Anne Steele sings this, invites us even to try on these words. She can admit that she has a fainting hope. She doesn't have to sugarcoat it and say, oh yeah, I struggle. <laughs> no. Fainting hope relies. Look at the the next verse. Now, um, when I found this hymn text, some of you may know this song, you're like, oh, I've never read those first four lines. When I found this text, I found it in John Rippon's collection. He didn't have those four lines. Um, I put them back in so we could see how the hymn progresses. So she goes on, she says, while hope revives, though pressed with fears, and I can say, my God, Beneath thy feet I spread my cares and pour my woes abroad. Do you see what she's saying? He's like, I have a moment of gospel sanity. And while I have it, I'm going to lay out my struggle and wrestle before your face, God. But again, it's not hope revives, but she's still pressed with fears. She can say, my God, but she's still full of woe. And then she begins, to thee, I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Now let's stop right there. That's a good confession. Ann Steele does this sort of thing regularly in her hymns, and I love it. It even teaches people how to pray following this pattern. She says it's very much like Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel. But let me tell you how I really lost that truth and then how God gave it back to me as I entered the sanctuary, right? That's what she's doing. She's saying, dear refuge of my weary soul. What a a beautiful, evocative way to address her God. And she confesses truly, to thee I can tell each rising grief for you alone can heal. Your word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Good confession. But look where she goes next. But oh, when gloomy doubts 
Don't just sort of nip at my heels when they prevail. Let me tell you, you have people in your church every Sunday who are in that place, right? Gloomy doubts are prevailing, and they feel like they have to pretend in most of our churches. When gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. But then look what she does. She does this. She goes back and forth. It, it's, it's much like, you know, when, um, when Jesus finally gets that confession from Peter, you are the Christ. And then he begins to tell him, tell the, the disciples about how he needs to go to Jerusalem and die. And at that point, a bunch of them leave, Right? You know this? Jesus is always doing that. He gets the crowd, and then he says something crazy, and everybody leaves. But I love this one occasion where he says, well, how about you guys? Do you want to leave too? And Peter says, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. But I get now the connotation, you know, the, you don't hear the mood. You don't hear the emotion. But the emotion I think is going on there is, yeah, I kind of want to go too, Jesus. But I don't know where else to go. I don't, you're perplexed me all the time. I don't know what you're trying to do. I don't know how these things fit together, but where else can I go? That's where she's at, right? Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Sometimes you're just hanging on by willpower. I I heard Keller say one time, most of the Christian life is preaching the gospel to yourself, and every now and then the Spirit comes and and your spirit, his spirit, resonates with your spirit, and you cry, Abba, Father. The Puritans called that God's kisses. But you know, we don't live there day in, day out. We live in this place a lot of the time. Go on. Has, now, here she's, she, here she's doing a little gospel arguing with herself. I love these hymns that teach us how to gospel argue. Why are you downcast, my soul, the psalmist says. So there we have a pattern that you can talk to your soul and speak to yourself. As a matter of fact, I would say you can't grow very, very well as a Christian if you don't learn how to gospel argue with yourself. When your heart tells you that you're a miserable piece of crap, can the Word of God, can the Word of God overrule your heart? Right? Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? This is her hope. Here's what she's clinging to. And shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? And then she gets a little more bold. No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Oh, I love that line. Have you ever been in that place where the only thing you can do with your sorrows is breathe it? You can't even say it. You can't even say the words. Go on. And here's her comfort. Here's her encouragement. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Now when I put that one to music, I thought we need to sing that again. (laughs) So so I, I doubled it. But look at this. Is that not amazing? Own the disorientation. But you know what? Let me tell you some good news this morning. You don't need to wrestle well with suffering for God to love you. 
Do you know that? Do you want something that will help set you free today? I want you to wrestle well with suffering. For you, for your children, for the people that watch you. But you don't have to wrestle well with suffering for God to love you. Listen, God is pleased with us because of how Jesus wrestled with suffering. Right? Because of how Jesus responded to suffering, groaning at the thought of it. Groaning at the thought of it, but nonetheless drinking the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. Mm. That will set you free to cry and even to question. Jesus knew why he had to go to the cross. You know this, right? I mean, he's quoting Psalm 22 when he cries out, my God, my God, why? And he knew the scripture. He says, it's, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. And yet he groans as he looks at the cross. You don't need to wrestle well with suffering for God to love you. One of my favorite stories about this was a friend of mine, pastor back in Nashville, he uh, had a guy come to his, his office one time and said, you know, I've been coming to the church for a while and I'm, I'm really kind of intrigued and, and, and I'm really even on the verge of, of wanting to become a Christian, but you know, there's just this one thing that's really holding me back. And my friend says, well, what's that? He goes, look, I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. And my friend said, you know, brother, you don't need to, you don't need to share your faith for God to love you. And the guy was like, huh. Now I know some of you are all starting to freak out. It's okay. A couple weeks later, a mutual friend of theirs says to my, my, my pastor friend, he says, man, what did you tell that guy? What do you mean? Well, ever since he met with you, he's been telling everybody about Jesus. <laughs> right? And uh, so, so my friend Scott, he calls, calls this guy back in. He goes, okay, what's up? And he said, you know, when you told me that I didn't have to tell people about Jesus for God to love me, like, I had to tell everybody. <laughs> Let me tell you, you don't have to wrestle well with suffering for God to love you. Do you want to burden a suffering person? Come to them and tell them how they need to process their grief and give them a timeline. <laughs> and do you want, to, you want to die in the ministry? Impose that on yourself, right? Suffering brings disorientation. You know, th those that, that study the theology of the Psalms, I love, they have a whole category they call Psalms of Disorientation. And I love that, because there's lots of them. It's actually the biggest category, you know. There's a, there's a poem that, that helped me so well in getting this point. You know, when I was a senior in high school, I was a pretty young Christian. My friend of mine, who was going to be my roommate at college, was supposed to come on a a retreat with us, and he never showed up for the bus. Part of the significance of that is he had really, really severe asthma. He'd never, he'd never spent the night at anyone's house outside of his own house. It didn't make any sense that he didn't show up, and we didn't know how to find him. We figured out really months later that he'd been murdered, graphically, horribly, right? It took 10 years before they found the body. It was one of those horrific situations that just lingered and lingered and got no closure. And what it did to me is I, I remember thinking, well, I'm a Christian, and God is Lord, 
so I shouldn't cry about this. And it, it fit very well my temperament, right? I kind of I liked being the answer man. I liked being in control. I kind of liked being the one that sort of was in the know about what was going on with the situation, the latest developments, and I sort of used that to not enter into to grief. I didn't cry for five years. And as I was finishing college, some friends of mine were like, you know, Kevin, that's not really, that's not really right. And they began to actually pray. We used to have these, these prayer times where they would just pray that the Lord would just open the floodgates. But I was so afraid if I opened that door, I didn't know if I was going to be able to stop. And for the longest time, even in the pastoral ministry, I remember a dear pastoral older brother friend of mine, older brother in a good sense, said to me, you know, if you can't learn to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, you'll be a good teacher, but you'll never be a pastor. Now, he was right, but that didn't help me because I didn't know how to just start doing that. But I will tell you, I I was actually in Virginia. um, It was that same trip where I met Bob the first time. We were traveling around doing some Indelible Grace music, and as I'm wont to do, I stopped in a used bookstore on my travels, and I found the collected poems of James Montgomery. James Montgomery wrote Angels from the Realms of Glory, He wrote, Hail to the Lord's anointed great David's greater son. A lot of really great texts. But I want to share a fragment of a poem. Because when I I remember my wife was driving, I was sitting in the front seat, I just opened the book, and I started to read this poem on our Savior's prayers. I'm sure you can find the whole thing online. But I got to this section about the, the, the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And look at this. Look at this. He says, Next, with strong cries and bitter tears, thrice hallowed he that doleful ground, where trembling with mysterious fears, his sweat like blood drops fell around. And being in an agony, he prayed yet more earnestly. Here, oft in spirit, let me kneel. Share in the speechless griefs I see. And while he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love to me. Break my hard heart and grace supply for him who died for me to die. When I read that line, while he felt what I should feel, it was like an electric shock. Because I was in such shame over not being able to feel like I wanted to feel. But look at what he's saying. Jesus felt what I should feel. You know, B.B. Warfield in his great essay on the emotional life of our Lord makes the point that Jesus didn't begin suffering at the cross. He began suffering with the incarnation. He was circumcised. His flesh was cut as an eight-day-old infant, not because he needed to be cleansed for him, but for us. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in that garden, he wept over sin like I haven't begun to do. And I get credit for it. Part of what it means to have the imputed righteousness of Christ is that I get credit not only for what Jesus did and what he said, but even for what he felt. I mean, Jesus says that we're to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, 
with all our soul, from the moment we're born to the moment we die, with no variation. How are you doing with that? I don't do too well. But in Christ, who did what I should do, who suffered what I should suffer, and even felt what I should feel, I am set free. Right? And so are you. So are you. Yes, amen. While he felt what I should feel, I feel all his power of love to me. Let me tell you something. This has been such a huge thing for me in my pastoral counseling. Because all the time, and not only true of us, but I, I meet people who have endured intense suffering. And, and you know, it, it, it's been well said that if you, if you follow the trail of pain in someone's life, you generally will get to their idols. Because so often their idols are connected to things that they've suffered that they do not want to even get close to again, right? So they've made little core commitments or they've made sort of little fortresses to say, I'm never going to be vulnerable like that again. I'm never going to put myself out there again where I can be hurt like that, okay? Well, here's what I, here's what I think Montgomery is helping us to see. The thing that you would do anything to avoid feeling. Jesus took willingly. Do you want to never feel shame and vulnerable? And so you just work like a, like a crazy man, right? You're just this workaholic because you never, ever want to be seen as less than competent. Jack Miller, a man I dearly loved and learned so much from, used to say about this sort of woe to those who try to be the omnicompetent pastor. Are you the omnicompetent pastor, the omnicompetent mom, the omnicompetent worship leader, right? Listen, what is it you're afraid of? What is it that you don't want to embrace? What is it even that makes you doubt the very love of Christ? See, here's the thing. As, you're, as, I, as I'm wrestling with folks, I'm saying, well, the fact that this happened to me, I'll give you a, maybe, maybe a less graphic example. I wasn't married until I was 33, all right? And I endured being in a church. I, I served on staff with Scotty Smith for years. And dear brother regularly would ask people to pray for me to get a wife from the pulpit. <laughs> he meant well. But let me tell you, if you're still single when you're 33, it's different. I mean, I talk to college students all the time who are freaking out because they're graduating and they don't have any marriage prospects. And I'm like, okay, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to that. But it's different when you're 33. It just is, Right? And here's the thing. Jesus knew what it was like to be single at 33. And he didn't have to be. He didn't have to leave his father's side. He didn't have to come and endure loneliness, poverty, betrayal. So here's the thing. Whatever it is that you don't want to embrace, the thing that you just can't, the place you can't go, Jesus went there. And this deep motion that sort of triggers for you, oh, can the love of God be true because of this, if this happened? And what I want to say is, actually, you have an emotional connection. You have a doorway into understanding what the love of Jesus felt like for him. Because what the love of Jesus felt like for him was praying with sweat that were like great blood drops coming down. 
Do you want to have an emotional connection? Do you want to, do you want to begin to connect even your sorrow to the sufferings of Jesus? There's a connection here. There's a connection here. And that leads me to the next point. Be open to other possibilities of what God is doing in our suffering. One of the things I I try to encourage people to do so much is try not to jump to conclusions for yourself and for others about suffering. We serve a God who can do more than we can ask or imagine, right? I want to pull up another hymn. I asked the Lord that I might grow. John Newton wrote this. John Newton and William Cooper put together a, a collection of hymns called The Only Hymns. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds. Oh, so many amazing hymns. Let us love and sing in wonder. But he also wrote this one. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more. With his own hand, he seemed to aggravate, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my feelings. That's the original. Laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayest seek thy all in me.'" Are you open to the possibility that God may be doing something in your suffering that you have yet to understand, and actually may never understand. You know that Job never is privy to the conversation between God and Satan. Never. Here's what I want to I bring out. John Newton doesn't write that hymn glibly. There's that line in there, crossed all my fair designs. That phrase appears another place in the only hymns. It appears in the preface. Because John Newton and William Cooper were dear friends. And, and, and Newton writes in the preface that we intended this collection of hymns not only to be you know, a benefit to the church, but we intended it to be a monument to this great friendship that the Lord had built between us. And then he says, William Cooper took ill. We know, some of you know what happened. He went insane, had to be institutionalized, never recovered, though Newton says on his deathbed, a look of joy and peace came over him, and he was convinced that finally at the very end, Cooper was restored. But but Newton says, when this happened, I was so distressed, I put aside the project and almost didn't have the strength to finish it. You realize how close we came to not having amazing grace? Let us love and sing and wonder all these hymns. 
He says, Newton says this, he says, it seemed that the Lord had crossed our fair design. And think about it. William Cooper is the poet laureate of England. He's the national poet, and he wants to write hymns. What are you doing, God? What are you doing? There's a story, I don't know if it's true. If it is, it's, it's pretty remarkable. That the last hymn that William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. He wrote as he felt his insanity coming on him again. What is God doing? I don't know. You know, John Newton has a letter. If you've never read the letters of John Newton, you really should. Absolute spiritual classic. And one of his letters is titled, Advantages from Remaining Sin. I remember the first time I looked through that title of contents, I thought, okay, what is that about? And it's basically this hymn in a letter that he wrote to someone who was asking him. And it's just saying, you know, God might have a purpose that eludes your understanding. Are we open to that? You know, early on in my ministry, I I had a girl that worked with me who had suffered really grievously. Her mom had passed away in a tragic car accident in high school and father had remarried. It was just a really difficult, difficult situation. And, and I was pretty fresh out of seminary, so I had all the answers, right? And one day I asked her, you know, what is it you do when you meet with some college girl and she's telling you about some kind of struggle or some kind of brokenness or suffering, tragedy kind of thing? And, and this girl, she said, I generally ask her, so what do you think God is doing in this? That was always her first question. And I thought, Oh, that's not my first question. My first question is, how can we end this as quick as possible? Right? Suffering is too valuable to waste. It's too valuable to rush through. What is God doing? Wrestle with him in the midst of the disorientation. Second, death. Trust me, I've only got one hymn for each of the other two, so we won't be as long. But what about preparing our people for their inevitable encounter with death? You know, John Wesley was asked one time, why is it that the Methodist movement, this revival of God, has spread so fast and so powerfully? His simple answer, our people die well. That was in a a world where people generally died at home, surrounded by their friends, who in good Puritan fashion recorded in great detail all of the deathbed sayings. Puritans had, you know, if you've ever read like a Puritan biography, about half the book is the person's life and what they did. The second half of the book is their deathbed. (laughs) Because they had this sense that things got more clear as you got near the end. And you wanted to record everything that people had to say. (laughs) Our people die well. How do we prepare our people to die well? I would say first you have to know that that's a goal. (laughs) And unfortunately, I think for a lot of us, it's not a goal. Do you think about this when you're thinking about what songs you're going to sing every single week? I I heard a story just a few minutes ago. Somebody came up and said, you know, that I had already prepared the songs. You know, I guess the bulletin was already printed. And then somebody in our church died. But we were already singing on Jordan's stormy banks. We already were singing songs about death. I didn't need to scrap everything and do a whole different worship set. And you know what? 
almost every week somebody in your church needs songs about death. Seriously, it's always going on. It's not enough to pick songs people like. As pastors, worship leaders, our goal must be bigger than that. Now, I had an opportunity to to make this point. Admittedly, I made it in kind of a snarky way, but it's still worth telling you. Years ago, they had a, this part of being in Nashville, they, uh, Worship Leader Magazine had like a, a, a little uh, conference on how to write worship songs. I don't know what they were thinking, inviting me to be on this panel, but somehow I got on a panel for like music publishers. And so the questions were like, what do you look for in a song that people pitch to you? And people don't really pitch songs to me. The songs in Double Grace always come out of our community. I've kind of followed that only hymns kind of thing. This is to be a monument to this friendship God has given our community. But I, I, you know, I remember all, you know, I was at the end, and so people are giving their answers, and they're fine answers. I look for you know, a good beat. It's got to be singable. It's got to be you know, kind of powerful, all these sorts of things. And they got to me, and I said, honestly, the first thing I look for is I'm looking for songs that prepare my students for their encounter with death. <laughs> and it was just, so I haven't been asked back. <laughs> Listen, I'm not telling you that singing these kind of songs will build your church numbers-wise. It may not, but it will build your people, right? And our goal has got to be bigger, right? Let's look at this one. Oh, heart bereaved and lonely. We, when we were recording the song, my, my friend Stephen Curtis Chapman, his little girl was tragically killed. Gosh, I'm so glad we had a song like this to sing at church that Sunday. Right? This past week, uh, we have a, a dear friend of ours. I've known the family for a long, long time. Their 20 year old son, doing a mission trip all summer long in Spain, decided to take a few days at the end of the trip before he flew home to go hiking in Switzerland. Went too close to the edge, plummeted a thousand feet straight to his death. I'm glad we have songs like this to sing. Right? And this is actually by Fanny Crosby. In a lot of ways, you know, people, like Fanny Crosby hymns don't often go to this place. I don't know why, because she was blind and a great sufferer. But man, listen to this one. Oh heart bereaved and lonely, whose brightest dreams have fled, whose hopes like summer roses are withered, crushed, and dead. I wanted to name our fifth CD, Withered, Crushed, and Dead, but... I don't know. (laughs) Though link by link be broken and tears unseen may fall, look up amid thy sorrow to him who knows it all. Oh, cling to thy Redeemer, thy Savior, brother, friend. Believe and trust his promise to keep you till the end. Oh, watch and wait with patience and question all you will his arms of love and mercy around about thee still. Look up. The clouds are breaking. The storm will soon be over. And thou shalt reach the haven where sorrows are no more. Look up. Be not discouraged. Trust on whate'er befall. Remember, oh remember, thy Savior knows it all. What, What lessons do we learn about preparing our people for death from this. First, you need to talk about it. 
And you need to talk about it realistically. You know, my wife used to work at a hospital in Nashville, and it was an awesome hospital. Nobody died at this hospital where she worked. Oh, people expired all the time, but they never used the word. It was excised. The word, we don't say people died here. It's clinical. We try to keep it at, dis, at, at bay. We do it with our faith. We do it with our theology. We do it with clinical language. We need to talk realistically about death. I grew up in an Episcopal church. It was one of those great churches where you had to walk through the cemetery to get to the front door. I, we're missing, I think we're missing something in that we don't have cemeteries at our churches anymore. Because the two things shouldn't be separated. They shouldn't be. I guess building permits and codes, maybe you can't do it anymore. It's a shame because there was something powerful about that. You know? You know, children, you know, children know that people die. It doesn't help them to, to not talk about it. Marva Dawn, great Lutheran um, pastor, has written a lot on worship, uh, said one time, you know the problem with children's sermons? <laughs> so they don't deal with the real fears of children. Death. Divorce death of their parents, right? And, and I would say we don't talk about it enough. We don't sing about it enough. We need to talk realistically about death. It is coming. But we need to own that it's a great enemy. Christianity is not stoicism, right? Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus knowing that he was about to raise him, Right? Imagine what it was like for Jesus to walk this earth and see the brokenness that had come to his his great creation. I I remember thinking after 9-11, oh, the anguish was just unbearable. But I thought, what must it have been like for God? He didn't create people to be crushed by buildings. He didn't create this world to be broken and full of sorrow. I think one of the great temptations in the midst of suffering and particularly facing death is to think that God doesn't care. We need to point people to Jesus. He didn't just come and die. He endured suffering every day. And part of that suffering was seeing the brokenness, right? Jesus looks at the crowds. He sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. But he made them to be shepherded, right? And he gave them shepherds, these spiritual leaders. But he looks out at the people and he sees no one's doing it, right? Don't fall prey to that lie from the pit of hell that you care more about sorrow than Jesus does. And so that's what I love about this hymn. It it, it acknowledges, I love that line, question all you will. Question all you will, but do it in, in the presence of God before his face. But in the midst of that, keep looking at Jesus. Death is a great enemy, right? And we want to face it realistically, soberly, We want to invite the questions that death inevitably brings, but we need to recognize them from what they are. In my years of pastoral ministry, I find so often the why questions 
are really who questions in disguise. And if you just try to deal with the why question, especially if you try and deal with the why question apart from the incarnation and suffering of Jesus, you make a mess. You make a mess of things, right? This is, this is true in Job, right? He's, he says, why, why, why? And God doesn't answer why. You remember how God answers Job? He says, well, you know, where were you when I did this? Uh, do you not understand this? And Job's like, okay, I'm sorry. And he goes, no, no shut up, I'm not done. And, and he goes on, right? In answer to Job's questions of why, God gives him a revelation of who he is. That is what we need. Whether we're ready to hear it or not, we need to be pastorally sensitive. But understand, in facing death, revealing the who is really better than just trying to figure out the why. Because here's the thing, you know, now, I don't know, maybe you're in churches where you think that you can add words to the Bible. I'm not in one of those churches. And I'm not saying that you are, but, you know, there are Christians around today that think that you know, that God will tell us things in an exact way. But listen, until I read in the Bible why God took this kid from his family, I'm never going to presume to tell that family that I know why. Right? But I can tell them who God is. Right? So we want to point them, we want to point ourselves and point our people to the who. Jesus must be at the heart of our responses to death. Martin Luther talked one time about the theologians of glory. He called these theologians of glory that they love to spy upon God in his nakedness. You know who those are? Those are like the people that try to sort of abstractly philosophize about the problem of evil and God's sovereignty and sort of come up with a solution that satisfies everybody. And Luther says, don't do that. The way to answer the problem of evil, I would say the way to respond to the problem of evil, is to point to the cross. The fullest revelation and unveiling of the love of God, the patience of God, the wrath of God, the mercy of God. It's Christ crucified. That's why Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified summarizes the whole thing. Point people to Christ and him crucified because the temptation that is seeking to take over them in the midst of their questions about death is that God doesn't care and God doesn't know what this feels like. And you have to point him to Jesus because he knows. He knows. How about heaven? We're going to sing a hymn here, one of my absolute favorites, Jesus, I'm a cross. Some ways I could have done the whole talk just on that hymn. In some ways I could have just sat down and said, let's just sing. We'll look at verse 5 and 6. We're going to sing the whole thing, so I'm just going to jump to to verse 5 where it starts to talk about heaven. It says this, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Repining is where you basically just are so like, depressed and despairing, you just sort of like, like that. You know, when the Bible talks about, you know, your hands hanging limp. I've got a little boy who used to do that. Like, when he, we'd tell him no, he'd just kind of walk like that. <laughs> I thought, that, that's, that's this idea. And, and it goes on, last verse. Haste thee, and then verse 6 says this. Haste thee on from grace to glory. 
armed by faith and winged by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. You know, yeah, that's worth, listen, here's what I want to draw out from this. Don't preach a future that's only half the truth. The Christian hope is not mere escapism. We need to sing about the true hope if we're going to whet our appetite for it and whet our people's appetite for it. Our future is physical and glorious. It's not just disembodied existence on a cloud somewhere. And unfortunately, there are a lot of hymns that don't tell the full truth about, about heaven. We need to be careful, actually. We probably need more hymns that talk about this, new songs that fill in this scary, I would say, as a gap in some ways in the church's hymnody. But let me just tell you, I believe that for many in our day, we've sought to find heaven here on earth primarily through things that we can buy <laughs> and things that we can buy without thinking about it. You know, you've got to love the, that commercial you know, for the very best experiences, the powerful experiences in life, you're going to have to have a credit card because you could never plan or save for those sorts of things. They're, they're always spontaneous, right? I mean, I work with college students. There's almost this, this sort of internal sort of thing that tells you that anything that really matters and is authentic has to be spontaneous. And that's a lie. It's a lie. We have to prepare people for heaven. Heaven is an acquired taste. Right? We see this in the Lord's Supper where Paul says, whenever we gather to do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. You know the sacraments preach the gospel in a picture. Isn't that glorious? We proclaim the Lord's death, we look back, until he comes again. So the supper both feeds us and whets our appetite for a feast that can't even begin to be imagined. I, I find in a lot of ways people have sort of put their hopes in things that they could buy, and when their hopes are crushed, they go to cynical, hard despair. Heaven doesn't exist. It's not real, because it's easier to kill our hope than live with unfulfilled longings. Worship should stir up longing. It shouldn't just pacify us in our pain. It should draw us even deeper because as much as we can sing and give voice to lamentation and to suffering, it's still not enough. Only that day when God himself wipes away every tear will fully bring the glad fruition that we long for. In a consumer culture, you know, cynicism is really just self-defense. If, if everybody is telling you you got to have this. you got to have this. Marva Dawn says one time, in, in, a, in a world in where words like stupendous and are amazing are used for laundry detergent, like we've got to come up with some new words. I would say, actually, some old words are pretty good. And, and, and there's a lot of good old words that help build up these longings. We need to sing about heaven, the fullness of the biblical hope of the new heavens and the new earth. We need to sing about it. You know, my wife will be forever shaped and marked by as a little girl standing next to her grandmother in church, singing hymns, looking up as they got to that last verse about heaven. She tells me she would look up as a little girl and see if Nanny was going to cry. And, and always that tear. Because a six-year-old, seven-year-old little girl 
It's one thing to sing this hymn about heaven, but for this woman who's buried mother, father, even children, it's a whole different thing. And we need old and young to stand next to each other and sing songs that deal realistically with suffering and death and speak truly and powerfully about heaven. We want to whet our appetites for the wedding feast of the Lamb that's coming, even if it hurts to live with longings. One of my favorite verses, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Here's the situation that you're in and that I'm in and that your friends and your neighbors, even if they don't know Jesus, are in. God has set eternity in their heart. He's put longing, inconsolable longing, C.S. Lewis calls it, in their hearts, and yet he's frustrated their ability to figure out what the heck God's doing. That's the world we live in. But I said, there's a lot of bad songs about heaven. There are, really are. So many Christians have this idea that this world is like the Titanic, and you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. We need to excise that. We need to sing good songs about heaven. That day should drive the way we live this day. Heaven is not just for when you die. And I want to bring attention to one more phrase in this hymn. Joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. You see, singing about heaven isn't just for when we get there. It's for now. Joy to find in every station. I, I remember when I first discovered this hymn, I thought, this would not have been written in the 20th century. We, we just sort of have this idea that suffering is something to, that, you know, what God wants is for it to end. But Henry Light here says, well, no, there's joy to find in every station of life. There's something to do and there's something to bear. I don't think Americans think very much about honoring and glorifying God by bearing things. We always think in terms of what we're going to do. I work with college students who always feel like, well, someday when I graduate, when I have more money, when I have more time, when I'm married, when I get to do all the things, when I get to go backpack Europe with my friends, when, some, when all that's done, then I can really serve God. And I say, no. And we sing this all the time, and I point this out all the time because we forget it all the time. There is joy to find in every station. There's something for you to do and something for you to bear. Even if right now you're not in the ministry you want to be in. Even if you're not serving in ministry at all, there's something for you to do. There's something for you to bear. And part of what anchors that is knowing that we do not have to get all of our joy here and now. Right? One of the Puritans said, he who rides to his coronation day cares little about a little rain on the way. Right? I mean, I don't mean to make light of suffering, and I hope in the context of what I'm saying today, you don't think I'm saying that. But there is something greater coming. There really is something greater. We're going to come sing this song. I don't know if the band wants to make their way forward as I say. You know, a couple of years ago, Bob mentioned this live uh, recording we did at the Ryman in Nashville, the cool thing about that for me is that it was 10 years after we made our first CD that we got to, to lead this hymn sing. And I, I told Bob, like, what I was feeling the whole time was like a proud dad. Like, these were my kids. But now, 10 years later, we're still singing these songs. And yet, the context is so much deeper and richer now, right? It's one thing to sing this song we're about to sing as a college student. It just is. And what happened was Andy Osinga, who had sung it on the record, 
was not able to be at the concert. So I thought, well, who's going to sing this one? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to have six different guys each sing a verse. I didn't think about it. I didn't plan it, really. I didn't intend anything other than that's kind of a cool way to get some singers involved that might not have gotten involved anyway. But let me tell you, there was something magical that happened in seeing six brothers together. Like it was one thing when they were friends in college. It's another thing when they've now went through miscarriage, death of their parents, all this stuff that they could not have imagined when they started singing this song. But the song still is their song. And they can sing it together in a community. You know, when we put this song on iTunes, it's seven minutes long. That's not generally advised if you want people to to sing the song or to buy the song. But up until about a year or two ago, it was the most downloaded song on iTunes of all the Indelible Grace songs. So I just say, we need more seven-minute songs that take us on a journey, that start somewhere and take us somewhere, and we get to even wrestle with it. And I'll tell you this last thing, and then I'll pray. This is one of those hymns that part of you sings it, and part of you says, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Because hymns don't just meet us where they are. Sometimes they model a response that's mature, and we're not there yet. So again, let's pray together, and then we're going we're to sing.